0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, number two, three, seven for Tuesday, January nineteenth, twenty ten. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Geek Cab premium for. Tuesday. As I said, I'm Dave Hamilton. He's John Braun. We're here. How are you? Well, we, we can't hear him. <laughs> you, you folks can answer, but we
1: just can't hear you. I'm good. Okay. Are you good? I'm good. Yeah. 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 Ready to rock. So what's happening here? Um, one thing I want to make note of, and then we'll move on here. <laughs> um, Haiti, iTunes, they let you contribute. Help those poor folks out. Oh yeah, there you so go. They can all do that. I, I was very happy to see that a, a number of people are are helping. But it's as easy as clicking on the link on the Apple homepage, going in iTunes, saying contribute whatever amount you think is is appropriate, and it goes right to the the Red Cross, and you help the uh, help them out. It's it's terrible. So yeah, that's good. That's a good thing.
0: I uh, I mean, it's good that we can help and it's good if you help john you had uh, an app that you found and we'll put it into the uh, cool stuff found category why don't you uh, why don't you tell us about that
1: well hi how are you doing John? sorry i hit an audio button on my side uh-huh. and i started hearing something i thought it was you <laughs> no okay let me get to my app here oh my gosh you caught me by surprise i did didn't have a list here i know so give me one moment here but but the app gets to the issue of so we've had a number of users ask the question if I have devices on my network, uh, TCP IP devices uh, is is what this app deals with. How can I find out if I don't know? Now, one would think that you would know, but you may not, if it, either if it's DHCP or you set it manually, or especially if you're on a network where um, you know other people are plugging things in without your knowledge. Um, and actually, this is a Monday's Mac gadget. I'll, li- I'll link to that, or you can go right to MacObserver.com and you'll see it in the, in the list of news for uh, Monday. Um, it's called IP Scanner. Kind of a boring name, but here's the cool thing. This is an app that runs on the Mac, and when you start it up, it will basically... Now, we've touched on some applications or, or, or ways within the OS that you can find out what's on the network. I think the the the, the best one is, you know, pinging the broadcast address of the network. That's right. Which depending on the broadcast address, you know, it varies depending on how your subnet is set up and all that stuff. That's one way to get all the IP addresses of all the devices, TCP IP devices on the network. But this just goes way beyond that, I think. So you run the app and as soon as you start it, it will start hitting the network similar and I assume underneath the covers, it's doing this ping thing, but then it does so much more. So for example, I ran it on my network um, the shareware version, from what I can see, will only list the first six devices. So if uh, if you don't have a lot of devices, you can get away with uh, getting it for nothing. Otherwise, they suggest a $29.95 fee, which I think if you're on a larger network is well worth it because of all the grief it can help you uh, avoid. Mm. But for example, it showed to me, it showed Time Capsule, it showed my, my G5, um, it showed my local computer, or I'm sorry, it showed my iPod, it showed my G5, it showed a, a Windows machine. And identified it as a window machine, it can identify all sorts of devices. So um I think this is the best way, either if you're on a small network or you want to, you know, pony up the money, which again I think is well worth it. This will show you all the devices on your TCPIP network. Uh give you the address, um, give you the MAC address if you dig in, tell you what type of device. I think it's just a great way of of getting an idea of what's on your network. Um and that's really about it. It's a uh, uh, you know again it uses a cool. uh, you know low level protocols but it does it in a in a way that saves you a lot of time and and geeking out which you know if you want to geek out go ahead but but otherwise this is the good one uh, the only caution I've already got a couple of comments uh, uh, on the article today uh, if you're on an enterprise network you may not want to run something like this because it could be viewed as an attack. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's right. I didn't even think or a pro, because basically you're you're blasting out a a message saying, hey, anybody on the network, please talk to me and tell me about yourself. Uh, Some could view that. So if you're going to do this on a corporate or or enterprise or educational network, um, you may want to talk to the admin or or just not not use it. But for a personal personal local network, which and I think that's the target audience for this uh, for Hmm. for the most part. Yeah. um, Home network users. Yeah, this will help you. Like we had someone say, what's the IP address of my TCP IP printer that I forgot the address and I don't know how to generate the, you know, the uh, the, the status page. This will do it for you. Cool. So cool stuff found. It, it's very cool. Check the article, download it, check it out. It's shareware. And, and I think it's really great. Very
0: cool. Thanks. Uh, thanks for finding that. I'm glad you found that rather. Uh, it's good. All right. Uh, let's get to the meat of the show here and to Tracy's
2: question. Hi, John and Dave. My name is Tracy. I'm calling from Carmel, California. Um, I'm a premium subscriber, and I love your show. I have developed a problem um, with my Gmail account. I'm uh, running Snow Leopard 10.6.2 and uh, Safari 4.0.4. I have a personal and a business uh, Gmail account, both of which I enter through 1Password. And... um, my personal account is working perfectly. My family business account, um, which is vital to our business, is uh, uh, has developed a glitch where about eight seconds after opening, uh, a beach ball appears, and my chat list on the left-hand side of the screen then extends way down the screen with a bunch of hash marks with nothing next to them. Um, I sent you a picture of this screen. And um, the screen is utterly unusable. I couldn't even take a screen capture because I can't do anything. Uh, I have to just simply force quit Safari and restart. I am able to get into the account using the um, iGoogle approach rather than the classic home approach. Um, but I need help uh, fixing whatever glitch is in there. Do you guys have any insight into this? I would sure appreciate it. It's really impacting um, our ability to do
1: business. Um, you can reach me. At- all, right, all right. we uh, we'll, we'll go this route. So, Whoa, John, do we have thoughts? Oh, boy, do we have thoughts. David. <laughs> we do. I and mean, we might even have thoughts about this. Oh, oh, well, about this. Well, well, let me give you my first thought. Um, if Tracy hasn't thought of this, um, she said she's using Safari, you know, just for kicks. Try Firefox. Try Chrome. Try Try some different browsers and see what happens. Because uh, I'm I'm going to guess that it's uh, something's corrupted within Safari. So uh, trying another browser would confirm that. And if you let us know what happens with another browser, that would be great. Um, but if we're talking Safari, one of the first things I would do, the very first thing, it can't hurt. Uh, it may slow things down in the short term. But we'll go to the Safari menu, and there's an empty cache selection. You could have something. I don't know what it is because it, it, it could be invoking a plugin or some corrupted item in the cache. Well, not a plugin. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. But there could be something in your cache that's messed up for whatever reason. Um, try that. Empty cache again. Safari. Empty cache. See if the problem still persists. Um, the next thing I will suggest is a, is another utility which I'll probably do a gadget on as well. Um, and, and I think it's pretty cool. Well there are Base, a few ways to get it. Uh, John, so, th- you were you were cutting in out. Say say that other
0: utility again. What's the name okay. of it?
1: So the utility is called Plug In Cool. Oh. Um and basically this is a plugin manager for Mac OS X. All sorts of plugins. Uh but it does have a place where you can examine. Now you can do this through uh, Safari as well. Um you can list all the plugins. Uh I don't have it quite in front of me. Uh window. Yeah, maybe you can poke around and tell me where that is while, while, while I go on here. There's somewhere within Safari. Oh, I'm sorry. So help menu in Safari, installed plugins. That'll show you the plugins. Um, could be one of those. So the thing is, Safari really doesn't give you a way to easily um, you know, manipulate that. But plugin cool does. It basically shows you all of the plugins. And, and uh, plugins in Safari uh, or in any browser allows you to do things beyond what the browser normally does. So, for example, one great example is Acrobat. Um, When you're rendering Acrobat files, you're you're not using... uh, Safari doesn't know how to do that, but if you have a plugin for Acrobat, it will do that for you. I'm Looking at my list here, I see a Juniper Network extension, a Java extension, DivX, QuickTime. So, these are all add-ons, and the thing, if if they're... Or there could be conflicts. I have seen that. Like, for example, Dave, you and I have seen with uh, Expressions, which we use for uh, TMO publishing... I believe um, Microsoft Silverlight conflicts with Expressions in that some of the dialogues don't work right.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there, working there was with something on weird this. with that. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, there Stephen, something there's weird. something
1: wrong, man. I can't upload an image. He's like, what's, what's up? And I'm like, and then he found something I think on the Expression Support site saying, it, it's oh, it's Expression Engine, but yes, you're right. Expression Engine. Yep. And yep. and basically they had a support article saying, well, Silverlight for whatever stupid reason. Conflicts with the ability of, of expression uh, to upload images. Yep. So um, plugin cool lets you list, but also enable or disable. So it could be tedious, but you may want to, you know, it, it disable certain browser extensions and see if that solves the problem. I suspect uh, based on what I've seen uh, in the case I just mentioned, I'm suspecting that, maybe a way to solve the problem is that some plugins grabbing that content and just doing something stupid or it could be the cache so those are the the two things i came up with dave
0: yeah okay so uh here here's here's my thoughts try uh, the other browser approach is absolutely the first thing i'd try and i would try firefox because it's not another webkit browser webkit being the engine upon which safari runs WebKit, for the record, is also the engine that renders HTML in mail. It's the engine behind OmniWeb. It's the engine behind Google Chrome. It's a system-wide engine. So if you're having problems in Safari, chances are you'll also have problems in OmniWeb, etc., etc., because they're all using that same engine to uh, to render their content Firefox on the other hand uses the gecko engine I think is what it's called uh, sounds right yep and so it's total well not totally separate from Safari but sep- more separate than most other browsers from Safari and it definitely will give you an idea. It's also the browser that Gmail is written for. So, uh, you know, it's the one they test with most. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if things are wacky in Safari, try Firefox. That's that's the, the first thing. And here's what I would do in Gmail. You have the you know, you have your your mailbox list then you have the chat list and then you have your contacts list. Next to each of those, or at least next to chat and contacts is a little minus sign uh, where you can sort of twist closed that list of chat participants. If you and and I just tested this, if you go into one browser and twist that close and then quit and open up another browser and I tried it with Safari versus Firefox, it that setting persists across your browsers, So it's saved on Gmail servers. It's not saved locally on your machine. So if there is some problem in Safari with whatever you've got in your chat list there, if you go into Firefox, twist it closed, and you're successful at that, then uh, when you come into Safari, it should be twisted, closed, and whatever problem you're having shouldn't come through. Now, that doesn't solve the problem, but at least it gets you around it. Uh, I think emptying the cache, uh, in theory, should fix this because that it, it clears up quite a bit of stuff. Uh, the only other thing I can think of And I don't think this applies to Gmail, but I'll throw it out there anyway, is that Safari allows for web applications or websites to store data on your computer beyond just what what it can store in a cookie. It actually allows Hmm. websites to store databases on your computer. And this is part of, I think, HTML5. Uh, But if you go into the Safari menu, go to preferences, go to security and go to show databases, it's going to show you. The databases of any and all apps that have stored data on your computer, if Gmail is one of these or if anything from Google is one of these, wipe it out uh, and and see if that fixes the problem, too, because it, you know, chances are this isn't a bug uh, or chances are it may be a bug in Gmail, but it it's only an interface bug. It's probably not a data bug on the servers. So anything you can do to wipe out any settings in Safari that have to do with
1: Gmail well, would, to me, be the the path to head down here. Because huh. oddly, I'm looking, so both my machines, so on my G5, if I look in Safari uh preferences security, I see nothing there. On my Snow Leopard machine, now I see something that causes me a little bit of concern, or I don't know if it's the default setting, yep. but if I go there to security um, and look at the data, show databases, I see a database called colon slash slash current size zero bytes, maximum five megabytes. I don't know what the heck that is
0: i too have that on my snow leopard machine but not my leopard okay. machine
1: so it almost sounds like a little bug or maybe a placeholder or something yeah, okay exactly. so i just wanted to point out the difference is that yep i've i've never seen anything well i've never looked until you told me about it but uh right. it, but, yeah,
0: but this okay, is a well, cool thing i mean the the concept is that you could have your uh a web app truly be an app right that that stores data on your computer and doesn't require a connection to the internet to be a uh, value to you. And it's of course mm-hmm. huge for iPhone users, right? But, and, and, and this same technology is supported on the iPhone, but it, but it's also supported on the Mac. So that, that's really the, the goal of this technology is to allow you to have a, a web app store data in, in a, in a large scale on your computer in a large scale. You know, I think the default limit is five megabytes, total per app worth of data which isn't huge but Mm -hmm. certainly much more than you'd ever want someone to try and store in a cookie uh so all right um let's let's go to tom here and let me try and pull up i'm totally out of sync here Tom says, greetings, John and Dave, which is great. (laughs) I am about to receive a new to me MacBook Pro as my first Apple laptop since a PowerBook 100 that I have in my little computer museum in the garage. I think I have everything figured out on how to keep things in sync except for one thing. My pop email sent items. I can keep my inbox current by leaving messages on the ISP email server, but sent emails reside on the local computer. And if I send one from my iMac, I won't see it on my MacBook Pro, and vice versa. Do you have any solutions for this? Okay, so uh, Uh. POP P O P is the older. (laughs) It's the older common email format. I'm not sure if IMAP was created before POP. You can probably look that up on Wikipedia for me, John. No, I think POP was first. Now the uh, thing with POP is that I think IMAP existed before POP. I I, something tells me this, that that there was a reason for them to create pop because uh, there was some issue with clients and IMAP or whatever pop is.
1: Can I which one? uh, uh, Well, I'm going to say pop. All right. I'm going to go pop is normally done for pickup pop allegedly because I've read through the spec, but I've never seen it used for this can also be used for sending. But POP is typically a protocol where you go to the server, you say, gimme my messages, and it picks them up. SMTP is the one that is used for outgoing. And that's the old school uh, usual uh, thing where I think IMAP does does both for you. So IMAP is is certainly the preferred thing. But but I just want to point out that POP also, once you go to a POP server and you say gimme, that's, that's it. Because typically after it does the gimme, it does the delete. I think that's by default how most mail clients are set up for. Otherwise... The stuff sitting there and every time you go to the server, it gives it to you again, which you probably don't want. So uh, the problem is once you get it from a pop server, that's uh, whatever machine grabbed it, that's it. So it doesn't lend itself to, you know, any sort of distributed or, or, uh, (laughs) you know, database or cloud driven thing at all.
0: Yeah, I'll agree with the last part of it. There's I think there's some confusion on the on the first part. Mm -hmm. Uh, Neither pop nor IMAP are meant to send email um it even even if you set up with with imap you are sending via smtp or ssl or okay no, well
1: okay. I'll, I'll I'll disagree with you because pop does have a facility it to does. send but i've never seen anybody use it
0: that's right you you dora had had a setting for that years ago where you could send with pop but but in any event uh even if you used that It still pop is not meant to store messages back on the server. Pop is only meant to retrieve messages from the server. It can also go in and delete uh, messages from the server, as you said, John, and and most clients by default go most pop clients by default, go to the server, download all the messages and then delete them. That that's the, the the old way of doing things, even if the protocols are out of sync date wise with IMAP. So, well, before I get to iMac, so uh, as far as Tom's concerned, pop is going to the email server. It's really only built to deal with one mailbox, your inbox, and it just pulls down the data, typically deletes it. And that's the end of the transaction. When you send mail, pop has nothing to do with it. It doesn't talk to the email server. Uh, You send the mail with with your SMTP server. And that's the end of it. That's pop. Now IMAP. with IMAP. It logs into the mail server and syncs up. It says, what messages do you have that I don't have? And what messages do I have that you don't have? And let's get each other in sync. So there's no deleting happening. If you go to an IMAP server and, and, and it has four new messages that you don't have in your inbox, your IMAP client typically, and you can change all your settings, but typically it's going to sync those up and leave them on the server, but it's just gonna create a mirror image, essentially, of what you see on the server. With IMAP, you can manage multiple mailboxes. And because of this, typically, again, it's all with your settings, but typically, when you send a message and you're connected to an IMAP server, you send via SMTP, separate protocol, separate sending, and then it gets saved into your sent mailbox. Well, if your sent mailbox is synced with the server the same way your inbox is synced with the server, That message gets copied from your computer up to the server. If you have multiple clients, for example, two Macs, uh, one of it, it, if you send a message from one Mac and then the other Mac syncs up with the IMAP server, it's going to sync the sent mailbox items and it's going to get that message back down to it. So you have a copy. The iPhone also supports IMAP. So this gets very cool, right? You can send a message from your Mac, And then you can be out and about with your iPhone and say, gosh, I want to look at that message that I sent to John earlier. Right. So I open up mail on my iPhone. I go to the sent items and boom, there it is. I didn't send it from my iPhone. I send it from my Mac, but it is one unified cloud-based, if you will, uh, storage for mail. So, uh, so the answer to Tom's question is no, you can't do this with pop without creating, uh, a very interesting situation. Now, We emailed back and forth with Tom and Tom had a very interesting solution. He said, well, my, my service provider doesn't support IMAP, which most internet service providers don't because it's a very uh, storage and bandwidth heavy operation. And and most of them don't want to do this. He said, so what I've done is I've set mail. He has two computers. As he said, he set mail on both of them to CC to BCC himself. So any message he sends uh, to someone else also gets sent to himself. And then Uh, He he had it uh, prepend something. He sent a rule so that any messages from himself that had a tilde in the subject would automatically get routed to his sent folder. And on one computer, it would be a tilde and the other it would be a, a, a hash mark or something. And so he had this this intricate system where messages from one would be copied to the other and it would automatically put them into his sent folder. And and the world was good. And then he mentioned he had a Gmail account. And I said, well, wait a minute. Gmail has IMAP. It's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's free. Right, John? So you can do IMAP to Gmail. And he didn't want to give up his uh, I think he was with Cox. So he didn't want to give up his Cox.net or whatever it was email address. So I said, well, you can set Gmail to send to and from uh, any address you want. And you could forward all your Cox mail to Gmail and then manage your mail with IMAP and get everything you want. So. Multiple solutions here, but uh, it's an it's an interesting thing. My advice, get away from pop. Uh, IMAP is so much better, even if you have to do the free Gmail, which is their IMAP implementation is a little bit wacky, uh, but it's so much better than than pop. And and you can you can manage your mail from multiple places and and have a unified inbox amongst all your computers and devices.
1: Right. Now, one point I just want to clarify. So we were talking about the, the uh, uh, you know, how new these standards are. And I think you're on the right path, Dave. But I'll, I'll just mention something okay, quickly, yeah. which is a good reference for for the, you know, our listeners in general. Um, a lot of these protocols are defined by the uh, IETF, I believe it is. But anyways, I found the documents. So they're, they're, they're usually called RFCs, requests for comment. Okay. And this describes a standard. So I found the latest RFC, as far as I know, for... Post Office Protocol, or POP3, is dated May 1996. The latest one that I found, and that's, again, RFC1939 is Post Office Protocol. RFC3501 is for IMAP, or Internet Message Access Protocol. That's dated 2003. However, a lot of times an RFC will replace a prior one. And, for example, this one that I found for 3501 obsoletes one, which is 2060, and that was dated... That, so that's IMAP version 4 rev 1 dated 1996. Now, I'm not going to, the, the problem is a lot of these RFCs obsolete other ones, but I'll go with you. Looking at some of the dates that I've seen here, it seems that POP is, uh, they were thought about at the same time, but I, I don't think IMAP ever caught on until very recently right. as a preferred, uh, because I think the, the, the problem is IMAP requires the ISP to maintain uh, extra disk space more than they, they, they may want to. So I think POP is less of a, you know, m- requires them to maintain less of a, uh, you know, less disk space.
0: Yes, Cause of course it typically,
1: does. Because people typically grab things off of the server right away, whereas IMAP, <laughs> so so I'm thinking that's why I'm, a lot of ISPs, like for example, mine, I mean, even though I love uh, Cablevision and Optimal Online, they do not offer IMAP um, and I, I don't know if they ever will. Yeah, I don't know pro- if many ISPs even bother to offer it. They, they're they stuck with the POP SNMP thing, so.
0: Yeah, I, I, and I see uh, RFC 1064, so 1064 from July of 1988, that is for IMAP, Ooh. IMAP version <laughs> two, okay. and it, it references RFC 937, which is for POP two. So it goes, uh, it it goes back to you know the the mid so to late 80s. So they tracked each other. So
1: they yeah. tracked each other, but but until uh, again, I think you'd agree, very recently. IMAP was really not on the radar for a lot of people. I don't know if it's more complex or or again, the disk space.
0: thing. I think, I honestly, I think you're right,
1: John. I think it's a disk space thing. And I think it's the
0: same issue that we're having now where people, you know, the ISPs don't want to provide, you know, what, what would they need to provide to real, to to realistically do IMAP? I think you need, you know, at least, at least a hundred, maybe 500 megabytes per user Mm -hmm. to do it, to do it right uh, without, you know, getting people, you know, totally running up against their their disk space maximums, because, again, not on, not only are you storing just the incoming messages, which is what pop servers typically do, but you're storing all the sent messages, all the trash, you know, the the entire inbox that could be. I mean, some people keep thousands of messages in their inbox, you know, and and then for me, I, I don't keep much in my inbox, but I have an archive and I want that to be consistent across my devices. So I have a two gigabyte size limit on my own personal
1: IMAP. Uh, account but it's of course run
0: on our own server
1: so you know yep so to sum it up not. pop is not the way to go if you want to access email from multiple locations yeah that's right it's just not the way to do it it's not
0: all right let's uh let's jump to larry here because uh we're talking about IMAP, and this is related i think uh you know what let's skip larry i don't i don't know that it's, oh this, uh, I'm not sure where we're going to go with this. All right, fine. We've talked about it. We might as well throw it out there. Larry says, I am a conservative sort of guy. And as such, I have been storing my dot Mac slash mobile me email, which is IMAP capable just for you. So you all know, if you have a mobile mm-hmm. me account, you've got an IMAP account. Uh, I've been storing my mobile me email inbox, trash and sent messages on my computer. I should say my prime computer for my email on other computers that I visit in the setup for mobile me account. I go along with the default su- suggestion that these be stored on the server. Well, I've come to the conclusion that storing my messages on the server is the more conservative choice. How can I transition my prime computer so that the messages are stored on the server without totally messing up my old messages? Okay, so we're talking about IMAP clients, which means, John,
1: your beloved Eudora uh, can't really take part in this conversation. Well, Uh, I think it does it, but but I haven't. No, I'm pretty sure there's an IMAP option, but mm -hmm. my ISP doesn't offer it and I haven't found a uh, IMAP uh, provider yet. Gmail, anyway, or or oh, you know, Gmail or or the Backbeat mail server that we use for
0: TMO. You know, you're you're welcome
1: okay. to have an I'll account have there. To, <laughs> all right, I'll I'll yeah, we'll have to do a security audit of that. Of course, I'm sure. <laughs> Anyways,
0: you uh, were saying yes. Uh, so in mail, you can go into preferences, accounts, advanced, and if it's an IMAP account, uh, there's a setting for keep all messages keep copies of all messages for offline viewing and you can set that to don't keep copies of messages now what this will do is it will not store copies of messages on your mac every time you run your uh your mail app on the mac it will sync up with the server and just essentially store them in ram i mean it might store them in temp files or whatever but it's not storing the messages themselves on your mac in a long-term fashion uh I'm not sure why you'd want to do this unless it was from a security standpoint. You didn't want to have copies of your messages stored on on any given computer. Uh, You know, for me, I store copies of the messages on every computer for two reasons. One, it's a backup. Uh, If something happens to the copies on the server, I've got them in multiple places. And then number two, it makes viewing much faster because I don't have to then re download copies of those messages. Every time I connect, uh, I'm able to, you know, it, it it syncs up with the server. It says, do I have the same copy you have? It says, yeah. And then that's it. You know, so it's a very, a very low impact protocol from a bandwidth standpoint. But IMAP is meant to be, a, you know, a server based cloud based thing. Where you're always downloading copies of whatever you want, and and that's basically how the iPhone works. I mean, it, it caches some messages, but uh, a lot of times, you know, you're you're just talking to the server and and pulling stuff down, which works. You know, it works depending on your uh, the speed of your connection. So, anything to add there, John? Um, uh, a little thing. I, I just want to yeah, comment. Go. So we've we've, yeah, we've been of saying
1: cloud. Yeah. And, and I just want to be clear on what cloud means. And I think uh, I'll throw in another acronym that, that I think refers to cloud-based services. So uh, if you've seen a picture of the internet described, then you know what the cloud is. The cloud is the internet. And it's usually portrayed as a big fluffy cloud and your computer plugs into it and it plugs into other things. But there is something known which we've seen more and more. IMF, I think, is a part of it, uh, but it's called SAS, Software as a Service, Um and this is leading towards not so much storing data, but, um, well, it involves data, but it also involves applications. So so the world seems to want to be moving towards this model. One, because you can offer it to anybody anywhere. You don't have to install software on your computer. You just go to the internet and you say, I want a spell check service or this service or that service, and you get it. So it's a bit more complex than just storing data. You can actually do useful work. Um, but if you hear references to the cloud, that's... Uh, today what it's referring to it's it's again not just data storage but performing useful work with a computer somewhere in this mysterious cloud and then it gives you the results back so um right you'll so, be hearing more of this
0: yeah Go. so uh, you know an imap server is is not SaaS, but gmail no. as an application on the web is or google docs is actually a great app, great example of yep. SAS. right okay mm-hmm. and google docs yeah. is awesome uh, if you haven't used it, go check it out. You've got spreadsheets and, and word docs. And I, I, th- that's what I use in, in Google docs. But, uh, I think there's,
1: I think there's, is there even presentation stuff? I, f- I forget, but, uh. Could be, but, but we want to help you be the cool kid at the party. So yeah, there's you go to there's your next cocktail party, yeah. you can say, Hey, have you heard about this latest SaaS thing? And people will look at you in bewonderment, saying, wow, this person is really up with technology. Wonderment. So. I like that. That's, wow. <laughs> C- can, we, can we,
0: can we, can, is there, is there another prefix we can add to that? Be wonderment. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but yeah. So like, like, and the cool part about something like Google docs, of course you have to trust Google with your data or trust that they aren't going to look at your data, which is what they say they won't mm-hmm. do, but you know, uh, is that. I can go in there and I can have a document on Google docs. And we do this at TMO and at, at backbeat media where we have, you know, some data that's not entirely sensitive. That's just, you know, data that needs to be shared and is updated fairly regularly. Like we have a, a list of cool phrases that we use in our emails or, uh, like, like inventory for the podcasts or for the websites. And we can update that, but the document can be shared amongst multiple people. So, uh, And if I go update it, boom, it's, you know, available as the updated version to anyone that's there. And if they're looking at it at the time, the updates will actually come through in real time. Uh, So it's a very cool thing. And I expect to see more computer based clients tapping into that. What would be great is if, you know, Microsoft Word or Pages on my Mac would tap into the store on Google Docs and be able to pull in and edit those. So I'm not having to edit in my web browser, which works surprisingly well, but you know, it's not perfect. So, mm. uh, so anyway, that's cool. Sebastian, I think it's time for Sebastian. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, I need to find it. Of course, Sebastian says, I recently bought a two terabyte, too big network drive for backing up my iMac with my, my wife's laptop and, uh, and a joint iTunes library for us both to access. Uh, In previous shows, you've advised partitioning drives before using Time Machine so it doesn't hog up all the space. Don't know if it's true of network drives in general, but the too big, 2BIG, I think that's the brand of his drive, certainly doesn't allow for partitioning. Although I'm reasonably technical, I'm struggling to work out the best way to set this up. I've read some stuff about creating sparse bundles, which seems rather complicated. Is this really necessary? On the iTunes library, currently about 200 gigs, but growing rapidly with podcasts, I'm concerned about file permissions being tricky. To date, I've been using the shared folder on my iMac, my iMac, yeah, and set up permissions to global write, which just about seems to work with a couple of glitches, like playlists disappearing and very strange things going on when accidentally both opening iTunes. Lastly, do you have any thoughts on using RAID on the disk? I'm torn between switching it on, as it would be the only repository of our iTunes content, but will one terabyte be enough for the library and sufficient for our iMac and laptop backups? Should I leave it off and invest in some internet-based storage for extra security and out-of-home backing up? Okay. Uh, I'm
1: confused. Okay. that
0: That's well, a good place add, to start. Uh, all
1: right. Well, let me ask initially. So so he's saying that there is no way to partition this NAS drive. And, I, and I'm wondering about that because I'm dealing with something similar. I have a um, uh, currently reviewing something, which is kind of a hybrid. And, uh, and other devices may be like that as well. but So going through the network port, you may not be able to do all the things you could do if it was connected directly via FireWire or USB. Uh, one drive that I have at my disposal now that I'm looking at has both a way to access it over the network, in which case I don't think there's any way to do any partitioning or anything, or a direct USB connection to it, in which case I think you should be able to partition it. So number one, I'm I'm questioning his conclusion that there is absolutely no way to partition this drive. I'm wondering if in fact there may be, now I'm not familiar with the brand and maybe, maybe there isn't, maybe they either don't have an additional port on it, which, you know, if I got a network drive, I'd probably, I'll I'll,
0: I'll stop you right there, John. I'm, I'm
1: looking at, I'm looking at the specs for the drive and okay. it, it is
0: the only interface on it is a gigabit ethernet, uh, port. Okay. It, then this, forget what I said. Yep. This is one of those drives. <laughs> and I looked at an iOmega drive while I was at, uh, at CES, that, that does something similar where uh, this drive is a, acts as a file server. It does, you know, SMB, uh, which is the Windows protocol, but is supported by the Mac and Linux. It does AFP, which is the Mac protocol. It also does FTP, HTTP, nice. HTTPS, Apple's Bonjour protocol or ZeroConf. Wow. Yep. And, and, the, and, the, and the, you know, the iOmega drive I looked at while I was at CES was the same way. supports BitTorrent. Which means that there's some technology in the drive that's that's somewhat intelligent. And uh, and and as an aside, the way this works is you set up a folder. You know, you go into a Web interface for the drive. You set up okay. a you set up a folder and you, you say, make this a BitTorrent folder. And then you take a torrent file and you drop that into the folder and magically the drive parses it. And starts wow. downloading on its own. So if even if you were traveling, if you said, look, I want, I want to you know, activate this torrent, you just
1: log into the drive from remote. Boom. So, yeah, so it's its own little server. All right, so you're limited is. by whatever features they decided to put in the firmware Bingo. and partitioning was Ain't not one of, them. one of them. And there's no possibility of an external interface short of ripping the drive apart and trying to partition it, which may not. Well, yeah, if you want to try it, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> well, but but no, I, I would not recommend that unless you're, you're, yeah, very adventurous. It's two discs in this thing, right? So, oh, there are. I yes, see what you're saying. Yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to assume the raid thing you talked about. Okay, because actually, you know, I have one of these as well. Well, I have something similar. Okay, yeah. it's, it's all making sense to me now. I have a <laughs> Western Digital my book at yeah. work, and yeah. it is two 500 gigabyte drives. Right. I chose through their software and firmware to put it in a RAID, I think, 0 or 1 configuration. Mirror, m- mirroring? RAID, RAID 1. That's mirroring. Yes, yeah. where it appears as a 500-gig drive, but there's actually two of them. So whatever data it writes to one drive, it writes to the other. Correct. But your Mac your Mac has no knowledge of this
0: RAID. It's all handled by the software built into the drive.
1: Right. As, as yeah. far as the computer is concerned, it, it, it doesn't know or care. Though You know, actually, I think I did try to use the Apple Utility. Ooh. And I think it, it, the Apple Disk Utility will see it as a RAID drive. Mm. But it won't touch it because they really prefer, in this case, that you use the uh, the Western Digital thing. So, yeah, right. OK, I'm, I'm, I'm clearer on this now. OK, I, I, I didn't know it was two drives. So yep. but so they're not touching. So unlike Western Digital, which says, yeah, if you want it to be RAID, we'll give you half the total capacity. Um, these guys are not not going in that well, direction. No, okay. they, the RAID is optional,
0: but you can't partition Right. Oh, so I'm sorry.
1: Oh, they do. Off, oh, I'm sorry. So they do offer RAID. OK, so just like the WD drive. Yes. They say you wanted a big, a big whopping, you know, drive stitched together or do Correct. you want it with data, you know, data redundancy and do, I, I guess, RAID one. OK, right, yeah. Okay. So it's RAID zero, which is or zero. stitch
0: them all together or RAID one mirror them. Right. That's that's the Got that's it. the option. So uh, so he can't. So back to Sebastian's question, he can't partition it. We've 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 covered that and then some. So uh, right. the the question is, you know, uh, about Time Machine and, and John, when we were prepping this, you mentioned that we have in the past touched on ways of making Time Machine keep its backups to a certain size. And as a follow up to that, I have to say,
1: yeah, except it doesn't work. Uh, and well, you can monkey with the file that is used for the storage. But but Time Machine can monkey with it, too.
0: And yeah, in my so. experience, they've monkeyed it back to the way that, <laughs> that it that, you know, so I went in they and I said, no, it? <laughs> yeah, they unmonkeyed it. Exactly. I said, no, limit this. And it was like, yeah, whatever. OK, we're going to go ahead and expand it again. Uh, so so that's not the answer. However, time machine, the way it works is it will fill up uh, the drive that you have. But based on what's what storage is available. So the, what you need to do is get in there and claim some storage for yourself. And the way to do that uh, is to put your iTunes library in in Sebastian's case, since he wants to have a shared iTunes library uh, Mm -hmm. to put your iTunes library on a fixed size disk image. So a sparse bundle is not the answer here because a sparse bundle is going to grow and shrink to match the size of the data that's on it, whereas a fixed size disk image uh, is a fixed size. So it'll take up whatever size you tell it to take up, regardless of how much data is on it. And you can't put more. Uh, and the way you create one of these is you open disk utility. You go to the new men- your file menu, new, choose new blank image. And then for the image format, you choose a read, write disk image. Make sure it's big enough to hold what you think your iTunes library is going to going to require. Um, and, and then, you know, and then off you off you go. If you tell it, you know, 200 megabytes or uh, sorry, you could tell it 200 megabytes but you probably won't be very happy. If you tell it 200 gigabytes, uh it's going to you know create a 200 gigabyte file that's empty, but it will take up 200 gigs of whatever drive you put it on uh and then you can go ahead and populate it as a as a disk huh. image. And and that's the way I would do this. It's not perfect, Perfectly. but it but it essentially partitions off that disk uh in a way that that you like. As Sebastian pointed out, anybody that wants to have a shared iTunes library, you need to be very careful that you don't try to open iTunes on all of on more than one of the computers that's sharing that library. Otherwise, you know, playlists disappear and wacky things happen. And and this is this is Apple's. Cross to bear, or at least it's our cross to bear, but it's Apple's problem to solve. They, they need to make it so that we can have truly shared iTunes libraries that we can sync our portable devices to. Mm-hmm. But but there's nothing there's no magic solution here other than Apple just opening that door. So mm-hmm. uh, so that's that uh, his second question, John, how about raid? I'll let you share your uh, your thoughts there.
1: Well, I think we kind of touched upon it. So raid um there are different flavors of raid that I've seen. He, he so has two options. He can mirror or not, right? So his question mirror is or not. should I mirror? Mm. You know. Um I would say if you're not if you don't mind losing half the capacity because uh, from what I understand the, the drives have to be the same size. Um yeah, I think they they have to. Yes, so, yes um, they have to. So you know, if, if you're st- storing the data in two places, now, now you know, it, it actually makes me think a little bit. So assuming that the, the 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 mechanism is unreliable, and I certainly hope that's not the case, but storing something in two places is better than one place because uh, on the other hand, RAID typically, it's all in one enclosure. So if some, you know, catastrophic environmental disaster happens, you're going to lose both the drives anyways. So I would say uh, I do it at work because i'm backing up the data and i'd like a, a higher level of assurance that it's stored reliably um right. raid 1 is you know so so raid 1 is better it's not the best though because there are raid and i think the next level you go to is something like raid 5 um much different that's right
3: and and I'm not RAID, a not an option. raid is
1: yeah not with this drive. So so RAID is, is that a redundant array of inexpensive disks? I think that's what it stands for. I, that's I'll right. Back no, that's right. That's right. The next one is, I think, called RAID 5. And what happens in that case is it includes a drive with their, an additional drive. So So I think you need three drives for RAID 5. Um, or it has a drive that that c- contains error correcting info, and I think the Drobo kinda does this. Yeah, but in their own way. And then in a RAID five array, if you if if something gets damaged, it can usually be even if an entire drive gets walloped, it can uh, you know unless it's really bad, it can it can be rebuilt. But I, I haven't done a heck of a lot of work with RAID five. I don't know if you do. Jay, I have. At our data yeah. center. Yeah. Or but I think RAID five is better and then you get i think there's like raid 10 and stuff like that but raid 5 uh stores redundant information so that if something gets walloped it's it's better than raid one um but it takes more more resources and uh more drive space to do that sort of thing well sort of uh
0: raid one mirrors the discs so if you have uh you know let's say two one terabyte discs which i think is what sebastian has Mm -hmm. you give up half of your storage space one disc and you get one terabyte of storage, but it's stored in both places. So if one of the drives fails, right. you're good to go. Now, let's yep. say you want to have five drives in your system, right? Well, with with the way RAID 5 works and, and you don't need five drives, you can do it with as few as three, but it really starts making right. sense when you have four or more, because okay. what you do is you give up essentially one drive's worth of your storage capacity In order for all of it to be fault tolerant, which means that if any drive fails, you you can replace it and you don't lose any data. Uh, So, you know, with with two drives, it doesn't matter whether you do raid. You can't really do raid five with two drives because you you need that. You need that third drive. But when you add the third drive, you lose its capacity, which means you've doubled your you know, if you have three one terabyte drives, you get essentially 2 terabytes worth of storage on raid 5. Uh so that's better than half which is better than a, a mirrored scenario in terms of storage for for price. Uh, and it does this by storing as John said, you know, um checksum data if you will. S- very simplifying very much here but but checksum data so that if you if you pull one drive that dies and you put a you know a replacement in, the other drives can have the data to rebuild what was on that drive um so you know but but in sebastian's case i would say definitely go with the the mirroring if it's the only place you're storing your itunes library mirroring is the you know is certainly one step of fault tolerance meaning if one of those hard drives when one of those hard hard drives dies because it's not a matter of if it's when uh, but when one of those drives dies uh you'll be okay you know you'll have your data in fact you won't even know other than perhaps this uh, too big, this C drive giving you a, uh, you know, a warning saying, hey, whoa, 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 wait, a drive died. You got to replace me. Uh, and then you then you replace it and it repopulates with the data and you're you know back to being a happy mm-hmm. little camper. so
1: Yeah. And I think a follow up. We'll have to dig into this because I'm looking right now in disutility and it, the RAID options. They don't use the numbers. But 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 I see three options here, at least in disutility, mirrored, striped, and concatenated, whatever the heck that is. So we got to dig in a little bit, I think, to, right. to, to, to help define those and hopefully not destroy our systems while That's we're right. experimenting. That's right. <laughs> but but Apple's Utility does offer the opportunity for you to do uh, multiple types of, uh, of RAID that, again, don't seem to correspond to the numbers everybody else uses. Boo on Apple.
0: Really? Is that the raid utility doesn't doesn't match the numbers?
1: Well, it says mirrored, striped and concatenated. It doesn't say it doesn't say zero, one, five, ten, whatever. Well,
0: concatenated would be zero.
1: Probably. Yes. Stitching together.
0: Stitching together. That's raid zero. Raid one is mirrored. And then raid five. Raid five is striped. Okay, got it
1: why couldn't
0: they say that yeah or at least put it in parentheses so that you know you get the get the feel yeah right, let's go to but you're uh, here so that's good and (laughs) yeah who's next (laughs) let's go to Harvey and let's see what Harvey has to say
3: John, Dave this is Harvey from Long Island wishing you a happy new year thank you I have a question about cabling and how it works with my MacBook I have a mini DVI to DVI adapter when I plug it into my MacBook and then plug a, the cable from my school into my HD TV, everything works fine. Anything that I see on the MacBook, I see on the big screen in perfect clarity. Right now, my MacBook screen is at a 1280 by 800 uh, resolution. However, when I'm presenting something at school, I have to go through their projector system that's connected through their smart board. Um, And I plug it in using the same connector. My screen defaults down to a much smaller resolution. It's probably 800 by 600. And, of course, things are distorted, and I lose the bottom and stuff like that. Is there any workaround, or is there any way to adapt it so that when I plug this into the projector at school, um, that... I don't lose my screen resolution that's on my desktop. As soon as I unplug it from the projector, the resolution returns to its normal size. So this is a problem in making presentations when I set them up on my computer and want to present them at meetings that I go to. So anything you can do to give me advice, I would appreciate it. Uh, You can cut me off here. All right. Dave,
1: I have seen, especially in the corporate space, yeah. I have seen so much freaking time wasted on lots of smart, smart people trying to figure how to get the darn computer to talk to the projector. And it, it just, it, it's a technology area where I think whoever comes up with the magic projector that automatically displays at the resolution and the clock frequency and whatever the heck of the computer is is going to rake it in because I, I've seen this so many times, but I'll offer an initial observation and then you can add to it is from what I've seen at least the projectors I've worked with and, and you know there are a lot of lot of vendors I think a lot of them default to a certain size in that some of them have a hidden menu somewhere saying I'm gonna look like a 1024 by 1280 or 1280 by 1024 whatever or I'm gonna appear to be a 800 by 600 monitor and I think what happens is the Mac will probe the devices including your internal screen and if the projector is lower, then unfortunately, the Mac gets dragged down with it.
0: That 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 can be true. There is a setting for video mirroring. Right. Okay. And, and if you go into the uh, system preferences and displays, you have a setting when you have a second monitor connected, there's a little setting that says, you know, mirror external display. Ah, if you have a good point, if you mirror, it will do a lowest common denominator uh, in terms of the, the resolution that's used it has to right you know it has to or it it has to find a common denominator it might not even be the lowest but it has to find a common denominator uh between the two mac screens you know laptop screens sometimes are in hd resolution whereas you know where they're 16 by 9 whereas sometimes projectors are four by three and so you've got this you know mismatch that happens and they've got to you know suss it out so here's my advice when you plug into a projector Mm -hmm. is plug in Go into the displays. If you're on video mirroring, that's fine. Set it to the highest resolution that you can find in there and make sure that not only it appears on your Mac screen, but it also appears on the external display. Then uncheck video mirroring. Now you're going to have two screens. One's going to be the projector at its maximum resolution and the other's going to be your Mac at its maximum resolution. The cool part about this is when you're doing a presentation this way, you can have uh, what keynote, and I think I think PowerPoint calls it this too, uh, calls a presenter's display, where mm-hmm. you know there, there's the main display that that shows the uh, you know the, the current slide as you want it to be seen by your you know your attendees or your your uh, your audience. And then there's the presenter's display, which shows you that in like a little window. And then also shows you and you can customize this, but also shows you what's coming up next. So you as the presenter can kind of pick and choose. And you can also in keynote, you can have it show you the time elapsed and the current time and, you know, various other things that that are helpful as you're presenting that you don't necessarily want your audience to, you know, to be distracted by. Right. But it all comes down to this. As Harvey pointed out, what's the resolution of the projector? And you have to find this out ahead of time because when you're creating your slides, as Harvey found out, if you create slides that are too big for the projector you're going to use, you're going to have stuff falling off the bottom, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to find out what kind of projector am I going to be on? And if you don't know, assume 800 by 600 is the maximum resolution. In Keynote, when you're starting up, you know, when you create a new presentation, you get to pick, before you even pick a template for your presentation, you pick a size, and then it shows you the templates that are available, right? So, you know, you, you've got to know this information in advance. Other, otherwise, you're going to be in trouble, uh, as, as
1: Harvey pointed out. So, Yep. Okay, I'm with you. And and a couple of other help, hopefully helpful hints. <laughs> I like that. HQ. Um, th- there is a detect displays uh, choice.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: In both the control panel, I think if, if you... Um, Go to the uh, 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 display control panel. I'm not going to stop saying that. Let's go on. Um, show displays in menu bar. If you do that, then you will get a cute little display menu. It looks like an LCD. Or actually, it looks like an Apple display. Yep. And it'll show you what it thinks is hooked up and the resolutions. But also, there's a choice detect display. Sometimes, for whatever reason, it, 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 the Mac just won't see the external projector. If you're having trouble, for the most part, though, I've seen it, it usually after several seconds, it'll find it and and throw something up there. But um, if not, go to detect displays and it'll force the computer to go through whatever external video port you have and nudge the device saying, hey, I'm, you know, can you can you talk to me, please? And um, yeah, that's right. But I like your I like your suggestion about the um, the mirroring because. Well, it depends on what you want to do. Mirroring is good. Uh, so maybe starting off with mirroring at a low, uh, which I think you suggest at a lowest common denominator is good. Sometimes you may want to, and I've done this sometimes, is, yeah, you, you want to span the screens. Then, of course, it's, it's kind of a toss-up. And I, I've worked in situations where the resolution of my Mac screen... Was different from the resolution of the projector, but I dealt with it always. You know, yeah. I, and you, uh, you span can scan from one to the other. You can guarantee that the resolution
0: is going to be different. I mean, it. You know, it, I, 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 I haven't seen any situation where the resolution of my Mac is the same as right. the projector. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. So um. So dig in, So find out. I mean, it's annoying that you have to do this, but find out. Uh, or uh, and I've seen this. There, there are menus on the projectors if you can find where the heck they are, that say, "Hey, I look like a ten twenty four by." Whatever whatever resolution monitor, and then more than likely, that, that's what it's going to sync at and yep. hopefully not drag the computer down. Cool. So
0: All right. A, a networking question that I think is pretty valuable for, for anyone with a home network.
1: Hi, guys. Just a quick question regarding Ethernet. I was wondering if I've come out of a router and I've taken my cable and run maybe 50 feet down to a computer, but I would like to add an additional computer from that cable. Can I just add on another router, or do I need to start back at the original router? Basically, I'm asking, can I continue to splice on additional routers? Um, It was very difficult to get that cable down to that particular computer. It would make it much easier to now splice it and go on uh, from that. Um, Your help would be greatly appreciated. And as usual, love the show. Thanks for all your help. Thank you. (sighs) Bye-bye. I'm going to say electrically, and I, I just did a quick search on on, on the, the, the internet here, but it's, yeah. it seems that the maximum run for the most part for Ethernet, you're talking about 300 feet. That's right. Before it starts getting cranky, uh, not getting enough signal. So um, one question is, yeah, the distance that he's talking here, I think is is perfectly acceptable. And then if you want to comment on, you know, is what he's saying crazy or is that that's something he can do?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like Distance wise, he's got a good connection from whatever computer is plugged into that, that cable all the way back to his router, which is a good thing. Uh, is it crazy to splice an ethernet cable? Yeah. Yeah. You can't do that. Uh, well, not physically splice the cable. Correct. But you can plug. Now I wouldn't plug another router in a, because they're going to cost more than, than what we're going to recommend. And B, because it's going to create some weird network topology issues. Uh, what I would get is what's called a switch. in the old days we used hubs, but now switches are a little more efficient. Uh, but essentially what this is, is a device and you can get them with, you know, four ports, five ports, eight ports, 16 ports, however many you want. It's a hub that it's a device that shares all the ethernet data amongst all the computers plugged into the port. So it's just going to be, let's say you get a five port switch and you can get a five port switch for like 40 bucks. Okay. Uh, You know, you plug your long run cable into one port. It's Mm -hmm. just five ports. That's it. Five ports and a power port because you got to plug it into the wall. So you plug your long run cable into one port uh, and that would normally be what's called the uplink port. Although all the switches out today are smart enough to figure out whether they're plugged into a computer or another switch. Right. So you plug it in. If there is an uplink port, plug it into that. Otherwise, don't worry about it. Anything you buy is going to be all right. Then you plug your current computer into another. So now you've taken up 2 you've got three more ports left. You can plug other computers in and they're going to go ahead and talk back up that wire to your original router. Uh, Mm. And that's what you want. Uh, They are sharing the bandwidth of that cable run. But Mm. assuming that you're doing at least 100 megabits on your switch, and that's what I would recommend, uh, you're not going to need anything faster than that for your Internet connection because your Internet connection is probably, you know, 10, maybe 20 megabits. You you know, you've got other bottlenecks long before
1: you hit the bottleneck of that. Right. Okay. Uh, to be clear, I, I. Okay. I think you interpreted his question differently. I, it, if he was suggesting electrically splicing the cable. Well, I think he was. But oh well, gosh, no! Don't. The, oh no, you can't that, do that's, that. You know, unless you got your double E degree, it, it's, it's certainly possible. It. No, it won't work.
0: Yeah. You won't. You can't get. on one cable you can't have more than one
1: one what i'm saying well what i'm saying is not unless you add something like a yeah no Mm. (laughs) not unless (laughs) you add a switch right exactly and and then uh, the subtle difference between a switch and a hub so in the old days a hub was a device where it had an uplink port and you plug something in and then you could plug in other things and it was kind of transparent it was like a virtual splice if you will yeah um the only difference is hubs tend to be shared mediums, and I don't think they even sell them anymore. If no, they do, it's they not don't. worth it. A hub, the problem is everybody dogpiles on the same network, and as soon as you get a lot of traffic, it all crashes into each other, and it's just bad news. Switches are much smarter in that they isolate the traffic from one port to another. So, yeah, so don't, don't even... And if you have any hubs, throw them away because... If you plug a few computers into a hub, it's, it's just, yeah. And you do yeah. any sort of bandwidth. Well, you'll see this pretty light called collisions that'll start yeah. <laughs> blinking more and more often as soon as you get more people. So, so don't even consider a hub. Get a switch. It's a virtual cable extension, and you'll be cool.
0: Yep. All right. Cool. Uh, some follow-ups from our last premium show. Uh, we'll start with Coder Kev.
4: Hi, John and Dave. It's Coder Kev. And I'm doing some catching up here because I missed the first premium episode, 231, Um, and I'm at the part where you're talking about the favorites folder. The favorites folder was a holdover from Internet Explorer 5 for Mac. That was where it saved um, favorited bookmarks and things like that. And the operating system tried to make some use of it for a while, and they eventually just sort of quit using it. Um, I was surprised that you guys found uh, a link to it uh, because uh, it's been pretty much – Uh, A disappeared folder and ignored now for the last several years, ever since Safari came out. I just wanted to let you know that, um, and keep up the good work. Great, love the premium podcast. This is where you cut me off. So, uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh,
0: sorry. All right, come Come up. I got him. I got him. Uh, So, what's interesting is even on a clean install of Snow Leopard, I found. Uh, a favorites folder in my home library favorites. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, you know what? No, I, I take that back. This isn't a clean install. of mm-hmm. Snow leopard. It had, it, it did have a clean install mm-hmm. of leopard and never had internet Explorer Mac on it though. Huh. So maybe they're still creating it, but you know, who knows? Let's see, is my, now my daughter's machine isn't online. Cause that's a clean install of snow leopard on the, uh, on the hackintosh mm-hmm. machine, but I can't, I can't check that one. So cool. Thank you, Kev. That's uh that's very interesting. Moving on to Nick. Uh, Nick says uh, catching up on shows. So these items may have already been covered. He says uh, for the question on the first premium show about the PowerBook that can't connect to the Internet on one specific router. There's a known bug in Mac OS 10 that seems to be patched in 10.6.2 where you had to manually enter into your Mac's Internet setting, your ISP's DNS and secondary DNS to be able to access the Internet. This happened on certain ISP and router combinations, but not all. I was made aware of this by an Apple certified technician when I found my iMac and MacBook Pro both suddenly stopped connecting to the Internet on my home Internet connection after Apple pushed out a patch. So uh, we did talk about that where there was uh, there was an issue and apparently putting in the DNS stuff uh, does solve it. So thank you, Nick. That's
1: uh, Oh huh. know. Yeah, no, he's right because yeah, that should just uh, bubble down like it does on 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 my setup here. That's right. The, uh... That's right. Yeah. Or actually, you know, I'm sorry, it does not because I look at DNS server and the DNS server, at least on my one machine, is the IP address of my uh, time capsule, which is what it should be. It, and on the know. time capsule, if I dig into that, then it shows the individual DNS server or more often than not, servers that it draws upon to, to figure out what's going on. Right. So.
0: Right. Which is why if you're, if you're someone that wants to m- have more control over your DNS, you can use a service and it's freely available at OpenDNS.com. Uh, this allows you to do some caching and some things that speed it up and also some filtering. If you want to filter out certain things from your network, you know, phishing stuff, pornography, uh, other things like that. If you want to filter that out, you can filter it out at a DNS level, not perfect, but uh in most cases enough to to you know keep mm-hmm. keep that stuff at at bay uh and then what you would do is instead of installing the open d n s addresses on each computer, you go and install them manually on your main router john in your case your time capsule and uh and then it would propagate that down and and any searches done would would be done through the open d n s if that's what you set on your uh, on your main router so nice yeah, it's cool all right I think that uh I think that about does it here well we've been at it for yeah 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 uh oh you know what i wrote down a note here when we were going through uh i think it was tracy mentioned one password what an excellent utility i, I know we've mentioned it on the show before but i'll mention it again if if you're someone who uses the internet and logs into more than one website with your mac uh one password's awesome it's, uh, it, it allows you to It's a database of passwords It also lets you create passwords But uh, makes it very easy to have Different passwords for every website But you keep Them all locked up with one Password to open up the app uh, It integrates with Safari, Firefox uh, You know, basically Seamless And huh. uh, I, I couldn't live without it And then they've got an yes. iPhone app So you can sync all those passwords down to your iPhone And open up websites even when you're not at home up. It's like what Keychain could have been. It's exactly isn't. right. That, that's a good way they, to they,
1: I think they were one of the first, which I thought was cool, to embrace the concept yeah. of let's store all your other passwords in this one big old thing yep. that you give a single password to. Of course, I don't think Keychain has the ability to dynamically generate unique passwords for that i think is one of the things one password does that it is
0: yeah and if you if you have to change a password on a website one password actually catches that and says do you want me to update the one i have on file so that you know you're, you're still in sync yeah it's cool and you can use dropbox to uh which is also available for free to sync it across multiple macs and hey while we're talking about it get dropbox it's awesome Uh, it's a free way Uh, it's freemium so you can get it for free and then if you want more space you can get more but it's a way of having a folder sync uh, from your Mac to other Macs and you can even share folders with other users in a pretty secure way uh, mm-hmm. And I think the link is uh, the link that we set up uh, to get Dropbox. You get two gigs for free. But if you go through this special link, you actually get an extra 10 percent or extra 250 megabytes. So it's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash bonus DB, B-O-N-U-S-D-B. And what that'll do is it'll get... Uh, uh, it'll get you an extra 250 megabytes and it uh, actually throws some, some good karma I believe it's pointed toward my brother's Dropbox account now and, and we all know he can use some good karma these days so uh, it doesn't cost you anything and it gets you an extra couple of a couple hundred megabytes on your Dropbox account So nice. anything else? contact info premium at macgeekgab.com is for all of you that way we know uh, who you are and where to put the content and all of that good stuff yeah right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Skype to MacGeekCab. Yeah? Phone. John, what's the phone number? 206-666-Geek, which is, Dave, 4335. Macworld Expo, February 11th through 13th. Uh, we have a special link where uh, you guys can sign up. If you're coming to Macworld Expo, sign up for tickets for, uh, the, uh, for our Cirque de Mac party, which is on the night of the 11th. And uh, and we'll make sure you uh, especially you premium folks, we'll we'll do everything we can to make sure you guys get in. So Not the other riffraff? <laughs> oh, no, we're trying to let everybody in. There's no riffraff, <laughs> but you know, premium folks, they support us directly. You know, oh, 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 oh. Ah, bring in the band. we oh, we gotta bring them back in. They, you know, see up, if we can we see if we can throw some love back. That's you know, hey, quid pro the quo, love. right? That's how the We're world all about works. the love. Yeah. All right. Uh iPhone is where Michael Johnston spends his time when he's not here converting the AAC podcast for you, and Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth to get us from here to there. C-A-C-H-E-F-O-Y. Alright, that's it. We're out of here, John. It's been a it's been a long
1: day. It's dark now. What the heck? <laughs> I'm glad I got in my snowshoeing before we podcasted it. When we started doing it was, well, we did two episodes, but it episode. was light. It was light. Man.